Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. On today's episode of The Neutral Ground, with the midterm elections just a week away and a spate of politically and ethnically motivated violence casting a long shadow over the country, we'll sit down with political columnist Stephanie Grace to try and make sense of it. Next, Bruce Nolan, who covered religion in New Orleans for a generation before retiring, recalls the Catholic Church scandals of 2002 and how they relate to the Archdiocese's latest promise to disclose the name of every abusing priest. And lastly, and hopefully more lightly, music writer Keith Spira swings by to tell us about some of the highlights and lowlights of this year's Muddy Voodoo Festival, which wrapped up Sunday. Thanks for joining us. First up today is Stephanie Grace, the Advocate's political columnist. Thanks for joining me, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's been a pretty dark few weeks in America, Stephanie. Uh, Just a recap, we had... Last weekend, a horrific mass shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, an anti-Semitic attack that left 11 people dead. Uh, There were a series of crude bombs mailed, apparently by a Florida man who is now in custody, to public figures and institutions that are popularly associated with the left or with democratic politics, in many cases thanks to insults hurled at them by Donald Trump. And then there was a shooting at a grocery store in Kentucky, that may have also been motivated by hate. In that case, a gunman shot and killed two African-American shoppers, apparently after using racial epithets and after trying and failing to enter a black church. So um, pretty dispiriting week all in all. Um, And all of this seems to be, seems likely that it's the work of people who are mentally ill, but given the sort of political underpinnings of some of the violence uh, and the ha- fact that it's happening just before this major midterm election, it's naturally become a big part of the political discussion. Uh, do you think that's fair, Stephanie? Should we be investing these uh, violent acts with political significance? That, of course, is the big debate um, out there. President Trump and his supporters say no. I think it's fair to say yes, I have to say. Um, there's a level of discourse in this country, a lot of it coming from the top, a lot of it aimed at, as you said, the specific people who were the targets of these bombs, these bombs that did not go off. It's not really clear whether they were meant as hoaxes or just kind of incompetently made. But um, to former presidents, the former attorney general, African-American members of Congress, high profile members of Congress, George Soros, who's someone who's been the subject of a lot of conspiracy theories. He's a a Jewish billionaire, a very big donor to liberal causes. liberal causes. And, you know, there are people who are big donors on both sides, of course, who are the Koch brothers, Sheldon Adelson on the Republican side. But his he's become kind of a, a figure of people in on the right fringe have really gone to to kind of blame, come up with a lot of really horrible conspiracies, things like that he's out to destroy America from within. Mm-hmm. That was in a video by uh, Representative Clay Higgins, one of our representatives right. up for re-election. Uh, he appeared in, he was featured in an ad by Kyle Arduin, who's running for Secretary of State, who basically equated him with Vladimir Putin, saying he would, Arduin would protect our electoral system from both Soros and Putin. Now, the difference being that Soros is an American citizen. Who has not 
to anybody's knowledge, tried to hack our electoral system, where Vladimir Putin obviously has. So it's become, so the question is, are there people out there who hear this and feel encouraged, enabled, emboldened emboldened to to act on it? Mm -hmm. When there are people who say they're speaking figuratively, do people hear them literally? I think the answer has to be yes. And I think it's hard to say that there is not a connection when you have, for example, um, this caravan that President Trump right. keeps talking about that is of a couple hundred people who are refugees from Central American countries where there's incredible violence, poverty, climate change, disrupting agriculture, things like that, heading towards the United States, very far away from the United States, not remotely close. And he's really made this this kind of apocalyptic campaign issue right. that they're coming to invade us. He's sending active military to the border. They're nowhere near the border. Right. <laughs> but um, they'll be ready, I guess. They'll be ready eventually. <laughs> and um, people, ba- mothers with babies walk up to the border and seek asylum. And there have been outlets, there have been people who've gotten a lot of play who have connected that with George Soros, for right. example. There's no evidence of that at all. Right. So, Likewise, it connected Soros with funding the people who came to protest Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. Correct. When, it, again, there's no evidence. He does fund liberal organizations. There right. are people connected to liberal organizations. But it's many steps removed. So and to act as if there are not people who were sexually assaulted who felt strongly about that is, I think, absurd on its face. Right. So he's so Soros is sort of a a boogeyman for all of this. And is this I mean, is this is he a boogeyman just for all things liberal or is this anti-Semitism cloaked in anti-liberalism? Or I, what I is- think they're connected. And again, you get these two two of the big stories, not the Kentucky incident, which was awful on its own. But George Soros is one of the people who received mm-hmm. a bomb and this synagogue was targeted by someone who is very upset about the caravan specifically right. about immigration specifically he said and so. believes that he that jews are trying to undermine the country by bringing foreigners correct in. yeah it's interesting to see that some of the people saying these things are not even backing down even after these incidents right right <laughs> yeah it's uh it's shocking yeah. um so so politically, of course, this happens, all of this is happening in, you know, two weeks before a major election, and it's kind of refocused the election in some ways, or taken, maybe change people's, what people are focused on. Who do you think this, I mean, the president has tweeted that this is bad for Republicans somehow, but right. and he's complaining that it's unfair. But what, 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 how does this, last time we talked, which was last week, I believe, it looked like the Democrats were going to take the House back and this, the Republicans were going to hold on to the Senate. Is that still kind of the conventional wisdom? I think it is. And again, there are two, there's very different math going on in the Senate and the House. In the Senate, there are specific seats where Democrats are vulnerable in places where Trump is popular. So that's a problem for them. Um, in the House, a lot of the districts in play are suburban districts where the feeling is that they really used to be represented by moderate Republicans, mm-hmm. could very well be represented by Democrats. So areas around big cities where you have college-educated voters, mm-hmm. you have college-educated women, the demographics that are really shifting more when you look at it nationally. Uh, I would guess that this past week has maybe exacerbated some of that. Mm -hmm. And I guess the evidence I've seen is that there is one poll where the president's approval rating has dropped a little Mm -hmm. bit. I mean, we'll see. To the extent it's changed anything, it's just made that 
prediction, which is just a prediction a little sure. bit firmer, maybe. Sure, yeah. yeah. And again, combined with all sorts of other things with reports of voter suppression in different states, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So it would be hard to link specifically the result to, to specifically to this. Now, uh, this election, obviously, it will have big consequences for the country, but also particularly for two of our congressmen, Cedric right. Richmond, the Democrat from New Orleans, and Steve Scalise, the Republican from Metairie. What's, what are those guys facing here? Well, Scalise, of course, is looking to move up the hierarchy. He's number three in the House, the minority whip. I'm sorry, the majority whip. Uh, the number one speaker, Paul Ryan, of course, is leaving. So that sets up a possible battle for speaker if the Republicans keep the House. If they don't, they're in the minority. So the question is, does the person ahead of him in line, Kevin McCarthy, mm-hmm. who's a representative from California, move into the majority leader spot, which is what he is now on the Republican side, right. but there's somebody above him, the speaker. On right. The so minority. does he become speaker in waiting or does Steve yes. Scalise become speaker exactly. in waiting? And I think there will probably be less of a fight if they're in the minority because... Who cares? Who cares? They're not controlling Congress. <laughs> right. So I think maybe the most likely scenario at this point is that Steve Scalise kind of makes a lateral move. So he is now majority whip. He becomes minority whip, which is if you are in one way, it's a step up because he'd be number two, not number three. But on the other hand, it's the same job. Right. And and your party's not in power. Correct. Okay, And then what about with uh, Cedric Richman? Well, again, if his party is in power, that could mean interesting things for him. He's someone who's considered a real up-and-comer on the Democratic side. He's now head of the Congressional Black Caucus. That tends to be a job that turns over frequently. So I think the expectation is that he will not necessarily stay in that role, but perhaps look at claiming a leadership role on the Democratic side. And that depends on other dynamics, really centering on Nancy Pelosi, Mm -hmm. Jim Clyburn, who is um, a mentor of Cedric Richmond, but of the same generation of Nancy Pelosi. Mm Uh, the question is really when is does the generational change happen? Does the old guard sort step of, down yeah. or do they hold on for a while mm-hmm. longer? Uh, Cedric Richmond has said he would not oppose Jim Clyburn mm-hmm. for any leadership position. But if there is an opening, he certainly is someone who you would look at to move into one of those jobs. At the least, he'll probably end up with kind of an interesting chairmanship or subcommittee chairmanship on something like uh, judiciary or homeland security. He's okay. on those two committees, and those are both pretty interesting. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's about all the time we have today, but uh, maybe you can come back in a couple of weeks and we can talk about what happened in the election. Okay. Thanks for joining me, Steph. Thank you. Joining us next is Bruce Nolan, a former editor and reporter at the Times-Picayune who covered religion in New Orleans for more than a decade. These days, in addition to being retired, Bruce teaches at Loyola, guides tours in the French Quarter, and contributes occasionally to The Advocate, and is often consulted by the newspaper's reporters. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. So, Bruce, you were covering religion for the Times-Picayune when the Boston Globe Spotlight team broke that big story, the first of those big stories in the sex abuse scandal that eventually engulfed the Catholic Church. Take us back to that time, if you don't mind. It was uh, January of 2002. Uh, One archbishop, Francis Schulte, was just then leaving the scene. Uh, A new archbishop was about to take the helm at New Orleans. He he was Alfred Hughes, who had spent a few years as Bishop of Baton Rouge. But before that, he had spent most of his career, both as a priest and as a bishop, in, in, uh, in Boston. 
and he was officially the Archbishop of Baton, of uh, New Orleans for three days. From uh, He was appointed formally January 3rd, 2002, and the Boston Globe broke its first major story about the sex abuse crisis three days later on January 6th. <laughs> that, that story, of course, revealed that, uh, that in Boston, uh, the Catholic Church had systematically uh, buried uh, claims of childhood sexual abuse by priests, had shuffled priests around quietly, quietly removed some from ministry, quietly transferred others. The public was none the wiser, and it set off a firestorm from coast to coast. Uh, all over the United States, telephones began ringing in newsrooms in um, in Indianapolis and New Orleans and Seattle, in which people called up and said, uh, me too, me too, it happened to me too, it happened to me too. And um, the story grew into extraordinary proportions all through the spring of 2002, uh, becoming the greatest crisis in the history of the American church. Wow. And so Archbishop Hughes has kind of a rude welcome to the job. He's got a, he's on the defensive immediately about things that happened in New Orleans that aren't on his, were not on his watch, as well as a little bit some of the things that happened in Boston, where he was a member of the right. bureaucracy, essentially. That's right. Um, so what did the so what did the church do? That the the bishops got together, recognizing this was a crisis that the likes of which they had never seen before. What did they do? So the so the people the people in the pews and and significantly non Catholics around the country everybody was uniformly uh, furious absolutely furious there was no chance for the church to mount any kind of uh, there was no defense that it could make um, and so in the summer of uh, of o two the bishops met in Dallas and their attitude in Dallas was one of abject apology. They said we were wrong. We've we've had this wrong from the beginning. Uh, we have not evaluated uh, the, the well-being of children the way we should have, relative relative to say continuing the careers of trying to salvage the careers of priests. Mm -hmm. And we get it. Uh, we apologize. And here's what we're going to do going forward. They lay out a series of reforms, a, a collective a series of collective promises. Uh, the first promise is that um, we're all going to institute new processes in our local churches. We're going to have independent review boards take a look at every claim of abuse that comes in against a priest. It's no longer going to be reserved for just the bishop's eyes. Uh, they're going to be experts on these panels, and they're going to see these complaints. They'll talk to these victims if they, if they want to, and they'll make a recommendation to the bishop or the archbishop. Uh, a second uh, reform was um, transparency. Um, we are going to tell people in the pews if a priest has been credibly accused, and if he has, and if I think as a bishop that he should be removed from ministry, on the recommendation of this lay board, and we're going to announce that. And we're not going to hide it. We're not going to transfer him any place. Uh, because we now understand that there are victims in hiding who are terrified, who don't think they would be believed, and we have an obligation to get those people to come forward so that we can reach out to them. And the third reform is one strike and you're out. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a medical problem that we're going to try to treat. Uh, this is not a matter for the confessional. Uh, you do this once and your career is over. So those were the three main 
uh, reforms to come out of Dallas. And so, it, it, and I think this probably happened all over the country, but in New Orleans, there was also, a, you know, there was a report generated by a group that looked at all of the past cases, correct, in which they they deemed that there had been 10 or 12 uh, credible abuse, or credibly accused priests or clergy members here. And they didn't name all of these guys, but they kind of gave an accounting of how many of them were retired and so forth. And I think there were two that were not retired, and they said they would be retired soon. Um, but they didn't, there was the transparency at that point didn't extend to naming people in the past. Um, now we've, we're at a moment where we've got a sort of a fresh. Uh, outrage in the church, largely, I guess, driven by this Pennsylvania grand jury report, which is a statewide grand jury in Pennsylvania found, uh, looked at the behavior of the, looked at the church over a period of decades and found that about, about 300 clergy members had abused perhaps 1,000 victims. Um, that and some other recent revelations have led to sort of a 2002-like climate, I would say. And so you've got uh, Catholic officials again around the country promising to do better, and among them is is Archbishop Gregory Amon in New Orleans, who is promising now to release a list of all clergy members who have been relieved of their ministry over the last fifty years over claims of sex abuse. Um, what what's different about this time, and what do you think that Archbishop Amon is trying to achieve here, Bruce? So, I mean, so you, you draw the, the right distinction. In 2002, in New Orleans, the archdiocese says, okay, we get it. From this point forward, we're going to be open and transparent. But with respect to the past, the stuff that happened before 2002, we'll give you a statistical summary only, uh, and we're going to leave it at that. Uh, years passed, 16 years have gone by. Uh, things were beginning to quiet down somewhat. Then, as you say, the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out, blew the lid off the scandal once again. Uh, that, in conjunction with some other things, have agitated uh, the church into old levels of, uh, of rage and fury. Uh, and, so I, and so around the country, a number of bishops and archbishops, and in New Orleans, Archbishop uh, Gregory Amon, have decided um, that the response, their response now ought to be a new level of transparency. So what they are trying to do, I think, uh, hoping to regain some uh, another blow against public trust, uh, another blow against their credibility, is uh, they are trying to be uh, transparent. They're trying to turn their pockets out. They're trying to say, look, this is everything uh, not only from 2002 onwards, but from 2002 prior. Um, that's uh, it's it's a powerful gesture. It's risky. Uh, it's risky. It has financial risks in that a, it might trigger a new round of lawsuits. Mm -hmm. uh, B, it might trigger uh, a new emotional hurricane mm -hmm. as uh, trusted or even beloved clergy are found out to be abusers. And it may be of somewhat, uh, we'll have to see, it may be of somewhat limited benefit. Um, there's a high bar here. Uh, the archbishop is going to release names only of those who have been removed from ministry before 2002. But again, this is a church that um, 
that very, very, very stubbornly refused to remove people from ministry in the bad old days. Mm-hmm. So this is a fairly high bar uh, that he's going to um, disclose. And then, of course, there's the there's the fact that this is voluntary. Right. This is. Uh, We're not looking at the records. There. There's no subpoena attached to this. Nobody is. Nobody is in danger if this isn't the whole file. Right. Um, everyone has to take the archbishop's word for it that there's not a secret file under the bed. Uh, so you know there are pluses. There are pluses and minuses to this. But I. But I think he's convinced that um, that the only way forward for him is to turn out his pockets, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, Ask his people to trust that uh, his pockets are well and truly turned out, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and just hope for the best. Okay. Well, we're expecting to see that list of names uh, anytime in the next few weeks, so uh, stay tuned for that. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Bruce. Uh, it's great seeing you. Okay, you're welcome. All right. All right, joining us now is Keith Spira, the Advocate's music writer. Keith, uh, you're just back from a muddy weekend at Voodoo, huh? Fresh out the mud. I have clean shoes on. Uh, the ones I wore to the festival are sitting on my porch. They weigh about 20 pounds each. Yeah? you yes. got to save them? or? <laughs> well, actually, they're the same boots that I used to get out houses after Katrina. So oh. They've been through worse. Yeah, so. they must, uh, must have a nice fragrance by now. <laughs> they have a, a historic uh, patina about them, <laughs> That's we'll the, say. Yes. Is yes. that what your wife says? <laughs> That's why they live outside most of the time. Yes. 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 All right, so tell us what you saw. What were the highlights? What were the lowlights? What were the surprise lights? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, this is voodoo. You know, mud was one of the defining stories because that affects everybody's experience out there, especially those that don't have appropriate footwear on. Right. Um, so that said, uh, you know, opening night, Mumford and Sons, uh, you know, I wasn't the only one to point this out, but they were kind of the right band for that opening night because they kind of aim to uplift everyone and have you rise above your challenging circumstances. Right. Um, and they did that, you know, I mean, you, you have to kind of buy in a little bit, but right. Marcus Mumford makes it easy to buy in. I mean, he's so sincere and so into it. And you got know, the point where he was like off stage, charging up and down the barricades. And then he got up and he had this lit flare and he's like in the air. He's like, oh my gosh, yes, I'll follow you over the ramparts. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, uh, so yeah, he made it kind of easy to buy Makes in. a miserable experience a little less so. A little less so. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, I mean, he definitely is a half, a glass half full kind of cat. Yeah. And, uh. You know, uh, or the grounds half not muddy, or whatever <laughs> the case might be. You know? Yeah. So, um, so that was fun. It was a good opening night uh, experience, I thought. Oh, and just to interject for a second, I mean, people are in costume largely. So, do people do they weave boots into their costumes, or do they have costumes that are thematic with mud, or how does that work? Uh, the smart ones did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the uh, others, like the ones that chose to show up in like sandals as part of their costumes, or anything involving suede, maybe yeah. uh, it was a super <laughs> Not a bad, good choice. super bad option. <laughs> super bad option. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There were there was some. Uh, it was fun watching people trying to delicately step between the very narrow slithers of dry ground yeah. with trying to keep their white costume, whatever right. it was, pristine, and yeah. it was. A lost cause. Yeah. yeah. When that, when that happened. When that happened. <laughs> All right. So back to the music. Yes. What else? Um, let's see. Second night, um, you know, the headline was, of course, Travis Scott mm-hmm. filling in for Childish Gambino. Right. Uh, undoubtedly, some people were still bummed out. But that said, you know, Travis has a lot of popular songs, a lot of hits uh, that folks can sing around, along to. Um, you know, it was just him and a DJ out there. 
Uh, he was very energetic. He moved around a lot and did a lot of, you know, get your hands in the air, which, uh-huh. you know, the kids... That never gets old. The, well, there's a whole generation of people who haven't been doing that for 20 years. So to them, it's like, oh, yes, I will put my hands in the air. This is something new and cool. Um, so, you know, but he also uses this auto-tune effect, which is the sound effect that makes your voice sound like a robot talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fun for, like, a gimmick on a couple of songs, but, I mean, he used a lot of it on a lot of songs. And to me, that just got really monotonous yeah. and, and kind of boring, um, you know. So I think Childish Gambino would have been a much more um, uh, vital performance in a lot of ways. It had a lot more kind of social consciousness about right, it. And right, And more politicized and more mm-hmm. interesting that way. Yeah. Travis Scott is a political free guy. Pop, yeah. You know, he's politics free. I mean, All pop. I mean, good for the guy for... For uh, showing up, I guess, right? Absolutely, they were, they were without a headliner for a minute there. Exactly. I mean, they, you know, he set to launch a tour, his own arena headlining tour, shortly. So this was really kind of a dress rehearsal for him for yeah. his tour. So it was just timing worked out where you could. Come I mean, not it. that we should be shedding tears for the guy. I'm sure he was well paid, but it was. But I mean, it was good uh, for the festival to have a legit headliner. Absolutely, and you know, same genre, you know, similar similar popularity level. So it's right. kind of a lateral move in a lot of ways right. for them. Um, and yes, I'm sure he did. He was quite well paid for his yeah. trip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's funny too. There was actually a picture that was tweeted out of him backstage with Travis uh, Travis Scott backstage with Marilyn Manson. Oh, who said he was there to see him? Right? Yes, and, and they actually did. Yeah, take a picture together. That's funny. Um, and it's a, kind of a strange bedfellow situation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, and Manson said like, left me. Uh, I mean, I was talking about being bored. I mean, I was like, really? I mean, just I didn't think the band sounded very good. Um, there are all these gaps between songs. They wasted a whole bunch of time. And, you know, what was kind of like scary and edgy 20 years ago, ago yeah. you know, just isn't anymore. I mean, yeah. he, hasn't, he hasn't written any good songs. It's yeah. part of the problem. I mean, you know, Beautiful People was a fun, good song, um, but he's not had anything like that in a lot of years. Yeah, um, I think it's hard for shocking people, people who try to be shocking, to get old. I mean, it's it's hard to keep that up. It is, it is. Um, you know, the coolest thing he did was bring out the Soul Rebels to play mm-hmm. with him on Beautiful People. Yeah. So, um, horns really worked well, yeah. um, you know, in that song. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, maybe that's his new career path, <laughs> is to do brass versions of all of his old songs, you know. Either that or have a talk show. Because yeah. he, was, he was very funny when he, like, went over and messed with the... Uh, Sign language right, right. on the stage. Yeah, that, that was, was like, the best part of the show. That was great. Yeah, that was really funny. I mean, it was profane, right. uh, you know, because he was trying to get the crowd to have her say bad words in sign yeah. language. Um, but it was funny. You yeah. Know? So, uh, so anyway, so that was the highlight of Manson set, I thought. And what else? Uh, what else did you see? Tell us about Janelle Monae. Janelle Monae, you know, it was a very polished, professional, funky, cool show that did have you know all the politics and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff that uh, the Travis Scott did not. Um, it was a weird ending. In the sense that she was scheduled to end at 6.30. And so exactly at 6.30, per my iPhone, uh, they cut the sound to the stage. Like the production crew in cut mi- her microphone. In, in the, the middle, middle of her, as she, you know, she was finishing Tightrope, which is her biggest hit. And she was clearly at the point where she was winding it down. Like she was kind of in the finale part of the song. Right. Um, so why they chose to be that hardcore about cutting her off, um, I'm not really sure. You know, some acts can certainly abuse their time in these festival settings, and you have to keep it running on time, sure. or else it, you know, it dom- it's a domino effect, and it screws up everybody behind you. But it's usually not a Swiss train either. It's usually, yeah. There's usually a little bit of give. Um, you know, when Lauren Hill showed up 45 minutes late for her show at Voodoo a few years ago, they were totally justified in cutting her off sure. because that was her fault for showing up late. You know, um, that's pretty late. Yeah, yeah, and she actually and. With Lauren Hill, they gave her a second chance. They put her on a smaller stage at the end of the night, 
and she still showed up 40 minutes late for that set. It was incredible. Her she, whole day was just off by 45 minutes, I think. She managed to be 40 minutes late twice in the same day, which was probably unheard of. Maybe she'd set her watch wrong. It could have been on right on Eastern time. Who knows? Uh, but that said, Janelle Monet started on time. was very professional. Obviously, she was winding down, so why they couldn't give her two more minutes? I don't know, because she... She kept doing it, even though the sound was off. She yeah. finished the song but and all the motions. She didn't hear it. And she like, you know, dropped her knees at six thirty-two. So yeah. like literally two more minutes and it had been all good. Wow. So Do you um, think she was kind of pissed off at this or I think she still had sound coming into her inner ear monitors. Like she may not have fully realized that what it was happened? not going out because I think she was still hearing everything in her ears. Um but yeah, I'm sure she was uh, a bit aggrieved when she found yeah. out later. Um but again, it became this sort of moment where the crowd was still with her and they were right. cheering for her, you know, and she was going through the motions and collapsing to the stage and doing all this sort of stuff. Like we could hear it. <laughs> right. But yet it was like watching a silent movie. Right. So, wow. What a strange, uh, it was strange, strange moment. <laughs> it's very strange on the main stage, no less on the big, huge stage. So, right. So that was kind of strange. Um, but yeah, memorable. So the takeaway from all this was great weekend, lovely weather, some remnants of some bad weather out there, but it didn't really dampen anything. Yeah, it didn't. I mean, the numbers look really good. They haven't released uh, as of, as well, I haven't released the final attendance numbers, but it certainly felt like consistently strong numbers throughout the weekend. And you know, Voodoo at this point has a built-in audience that are com- going to come out almost irregardless of who the performers yeah. are. I mean, you want to have a couple, three big names up there, but really it's becoming now a destination and an experience. You know, yeah. I, met, I met people from all over the place that are out there and um, you know, they're coming to Halloween weekend in New yeah. Orleans to Voodoo Fest. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's on that level, it certainly succeeded. Right. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, joining me today, Keith. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm going to go home and clean the mud off my shoes. Yeah. (laughs) Good luck with that. All right, man. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell with two S's and two L's at theadvocate.com or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.